Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the Quantum Mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everybody in between. Yes, we are. Um, well, we're back in our normal little studio this week, um, having our excursion to the pub, two episodes in the pub with James from The Lawmen. Um, thanks, James, for coming on. It was really great to have you on. and I enjoyed those two episodes a lot. So did I. I tell you what, I'm missing the beer. Yeah, that's the only downside. We're recording reasonably early in the morning, and uh, obviously we haven't got draft beer on tap in uh, in this room. But uh, it'll still be good, right? It'll still be fine. I'll I'll, ma- I'll maybe um, turn that into like a Patreon target or something, <laughs> yeah. giving us a real ale tap in the studio. Yeah, that's that's that. it's something to aim for, isn't it? It is. We could all have little dreams i'm sure joe rogan has an entire bar in his studio i think he pretty much does doesn't he he has some he has some very um exotic liquors that i see on, on his desk he has a good good bottle of splosh that is for sure well we've we've got water but we're still gonna uh we're still gonna perform as well as we can aren't we that's true that's true well i i was slightly exotic i had i had a bottle of ribena on the way over oh you know how i live <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say um other berry-based brands are available, but I can't really think of any apart from Ribena. So Vimto, uh, is Vimto? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. It's not very nice, though. No, I, I'm definitely in the Ribena camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a holiday destination. <laughs> yeah, Ribena camp. Um, well, this week, Ben, uh, again, was sparked by something we briefly covered uh, a couple of weeks ago. Because we featured a story about infrasound and its potential connection to ghosts and other paranormal sightings and experiences. And in that episode, I briefly mentioned a couple of papers on the subject that were published in the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research. And I said, I'm going to have to delve deeper because, you know, the little bits we featured were really interesting. Yeah, they were, yeah. Um, So I'm going to come on to those papers later. But... Basically, they suggest that there could be a link between infrasound and some paranormal encounters. And that's what we briefly discussed a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. But let's start with what infrasound is. Because I must admit, before coming across that paper, I didn't know tons about it. And it's been quite interesting researching it. So... If you think about sound, uh, this is a real kind of simplistic guide, but sound is measured in hertz. Yep. Cycles per second. And infrasound is generally described as sound below 20 hertz. I mean, there's some debate on where the level of infrasound sits because it's a sound that shouldn't be detectable to the human ear. Um, and some scientists say that obviously humans can hear sounds under 20 hertz. So true infrasound is lower than 20 hertz threshold. I came across papers that cited 16 hertz as being the threshold for infrasound, but I also came across studies that some humans can audibly hear sounds as low as 4 hertz. It depends on your age, your you know the strength of your hearing and other factors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as we get older, I'm, I had hearing tests quite recently, and I think <laughs> I think my infrasound threshold is probably a lot higher than twenty hertz. Yeah, yeah, but you have spent a long time listening to fine music through fine devices. Yeah, going to very loud gigs, so I yeah. don't think that helps at all. Um, so infrasound can be created in many different ways. We mentioned before, I think you did, Ben, that animals like elephants, whales, even giraffes can create it. I didn't know giraffes could. Yeah, I was surprised at giraffes. Um, I guess with that big body, you're going to get these kind of <laughs> high-frequency things. I know, but with that long neck, I'd expect them to have like a trumpet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 they're more the uh, the saxophone yeah, of yeah. the animal world. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> they, they just sat around humming Baker Street. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to have that in my head for the rest of the show. No. Um Infrasound can be created by natural phenomena like earthquakes, volcanoes, avalanches, even strong wind can cause it. Um, It can be produced by human activity. Wind turbines have been associated with it um, quite controversially sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's conspiracies that go around with that. Uh, Propellers from ships, other machinery, so stuff that you might actually get in a house 
or a building can cause it as well. And this is where the term sick building syndrome, I think, originates from. The infrasound can, in some ways, cause sickness and weird feelings when you're either working or living somewhere that has it. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So let's take a look at the possible effects of infrasound on humans. Now, I've got to say at this point that there is a lot of debate on the issue of infrasound, much more than I was expecting when I did my research. And in the research, there definitely seems to be this disconnect between many in the scientific community and reports on the topic that you might find in the press or online. The scientific community feels more divided on the effects of infrasound on humans and the human body. Many pointing out that the connection with infrasound and the effects on humans is uncertain or often exaggerated. So bear that in mind while you're listening to this. Whereas press reports that I came across generally, as you would expect, were a little more sensationalised, let's say. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. I'm going to start with an article that I found from InsideSource.com by uh, a journalist called Bill Kahn, and it's from 2017. Now, this article suggests that at the right frequency, amplitude and duration, health may be at risk from infrasound. Though most people cannot hear sounds below 20 hertz, the body can still feel the vibrations. So you might not Mm. be able to audially hear it, but it is having some effects within your body. Now, when he's talking about health, I remember the last time you spoke about eyeballs wobbling. Is that the sort of thing that he's talking about? Yeah, he is. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you what the exact frequency is for an eyeball wobble. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sounds around 19 hertz match the resonant frequency of the human eyeball. Oh, Which is the one that we talked about the other week that was causing the paranormal, or potentially causing paranormal stuff. Um, So yes, a 19 hertz sound can make your eyeballs wobble. That is just the most disgusting thing I can imagine. We're going to come on to more disgusting things. Oh, brown noise. (laughs) Yes. It's believed the most dangerous frequency is around 7 hertz. It is the same frequency as the rhythm frequencies of the brain and other body organs. At high volumes, it can affect the human central nervous system, causing disorientation, anxiety, panic, you guessed it, Ben, bowel spasms, defecation, nausea, vomiting, even death from prolonged exposure. Oh, God. You could weaponise that, couldn't you? Well, we'll get on to that. So 7 hertz is definitely one to avoid. If you go to YouTube, you can find clips that play the 18.9 hertz or 19 hertz, roughly, frequency. Um, They do warn you that you might experience panic attacks or even hallucinations if you listen to them. I tried it out, and to be honest, I felt nothing, but that might be to do with my age and the quality of my hearing. Could you hear it, though? No, I couldn't hear anything. I I, I was tempted to play a little bit on the podcast, but obviously for most of our listeners, it will be dead air. Um, And also, I started to think, if I did that, People might be driving or something, and if it does affect you, I'd hate to be responsible for a car crash or something, you know, because somebody wigs out or hallucinates something. You see, I wonder, you'd, you'd need quite a big diaphragm, wouldn't you, to be able to reproduce something? Yeah, that, I, I wondered that on the YouTube clip, and even if, like, we did put it on the podcast, when you've got compression and all those things that goes on in the process of publishing our podcast would you kind of lose the effect anyway so i wasn't Mm. i wasn't even convinced that it would work even if i wanted to try it which i didn't however it has been added to a number of horror movies to kind of create an atmosphere apparently the 2007 film paranormal activity had uh some infrasound at that rate i don't know if it was through the whole movie or just sections of it and the producers tried it to basically try and deliberately induce some kind of spooky feeling to the film in a theatre i could imagine that would work yeah because if you've got i think i think also the loudness and the volume of Mm. it does affect it because it's about the vibrations as far as i can work out Mm -hmm. so ben at this point we need to talk about someone called vladimir gavro i don't know if you've come across that name before uh 
I, I've come up, there's been a lot of Vladimir's in uh, since we started <laughs> yes. this. I don't think we've talked about him on the podcast before. So I'm picking him out, firstly because he's an important scientific figure in the history of infrasound, but also because his story highlights something I was talking about earlier, the kind of muddying in the water and the misinformation that's about on the subject. But let's start with some background on Gavro. He was born in Moscow in 1904 and then moved to France and became a French citizen. He conducted scientific research on infrasound in the 1960s, and you alluded to this, looking for a potential of weaponising infrasound for military use. Hmm. This bit I, didn't, I hadn't heard of. His research influenced writers such as William S. Burroughs, which I found fascinating oh wow yeah it kind of there was some connection this is something i didn't really realize and i'm a big fan of the movie i didn't realize that and i'm almost part of me doesn't believe it i almost had a mandela effect moment in my research william s burroughs from my research co-wrote the screenplay for blade runner really yeah because he obviously didn't write the book do androids dream of electric sheep that was philip k dick but Apparently, he was involved in the screenplay for Blade Runner. But I've been a fan of that movie for a long time, the original Blade Runner. Thought I knew a lot about it. I'd never come across that. I don't know if that's my ignorance or there's... No, no, I've never heard that either, no. Anyway, I digress. But apart from uh, Gavro being an important figure in the history of infrasound, I wanted to talk about him because his story highlights this misinformation and disinformation that's out there on the subject. So if you do Google on his name, you'll find some incredible reports of what happened during his experiments in the 1960s. I'm just going to pick one and read it out, because I read it and was like, that can't be true. But see what you think. The first documented attempt to re- reproduce the infrasound effect was by Vladimir Gavro in 1957. He became interested in infrasound when asked to cure a case of sick building syndrome. The staff at a research plant in Marseille were mysteriously falling ill. Chemical or pathogen poisoning was suspected, but Gavro eventually traced the origins of the illnesses to air conditioning units rotating fans that were generating a low-frequency sound wave. Gavro began to experiment with low-frequency acoustics with the intention of creating a viable audio weapon for the French military. Several prototype designs were produced and they were christened, I love this, Canon Sonique. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound very scary. Uh, I think pretty much anything you say in French... (laughs) <laughs> could be terrible and it just sounds really fantastic and romantic it does it sounds like a special edition Renault 5 yeah hey, I just produced the Canon Sonic <laughs> you feel like you need a gitan and a brandy while you say yeah so this device consisted of a piston driven tubes and a kind of compressed air horns and whistles it was like this kind of weird combination of stuff to produce this effect Gavro and his team tested the instruments on themselves at the Marseille plant with unexpected results. This is the bit that struck me. One of the team members died instantly. No. His internal organs mashed into amorphous jelly by the vibrations. No, surely not. That's what I thought. Fortunately, it says, fortunately, they could turn it off quickly. Even so, others in nearby laboratories were sick for hours. Everything was vibrating, stomach, heart, lungs, etc. Now, I'm no medical man, but that doesn't sound good. But even so, dying instantly, that's... Yeah. That's crazy. Well, obviously, when I read that report, I thought, oh, my God, that is crazy. I can't just stick there. I need to dig further. Because, you know, what? You, you, you'll have it as well when you're researching. Something like that sticks out and you go, you kind of go, that can't be true, surely. So, yeah. according to some reports, one of his team did die instantly when the machine was engaged and others fell seriously ill. But I dug around to found, find if that was really true. And... A bit of a kind of place we go when we get in that position. I started looking for academic papers on infrasound. And I came across a really good one by a guy called Dick Boldler. 
It was published by the Institute of Acoustics. That sounds really interesting, doesn't it? I want to go and visit the Institute of Acoustics. I'd like to work there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, his paper was titled A Short History of the Dangers of Infrasound, which I thought was a good starting place. <laughs> it's so short, he just put, it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a one word. <laughs> it's, it's just an abstract that says bad. <laughs> um, so, Boulder writes... No paper about infrasound would be complete without mentioning Vladimir Gavro. There are so many conflicting stories about Gavro that it's difficult to know what the truth is, but I will attempt to set out what I think is the most likely truth based largely on his own writings. So, I, th- you know, if you go through those newspaper stories and online articles, they're quite sensationalised and, you know, instant death and all that. I thought if we stick with Boulder's analysis of Gavro's work that he based on Gavro's own writings, I thought that was the closest we're probably going to get to the truth. Yeah, right? yeah. Which is still interesting, but I'm not sure it's got the level of death that the other reports have. <laughs> so uh, Gavro and his colleagues created many machines and registered many patents relating to infrasound. And it all started after some of the people working in Gavro's lab became ill for no apparent reason. This included nausea and lack of concentration. Eventually, the problem was identified. It was a faulty ventilation fan near the building that was producing vibrations of that killer one, 7 hertz. Oh, no way. Yeah. But at much less volume, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Now, Gavro saw this as an opportunity. He wasn't researching infrasound, but he thought, oh, hold on, here's an idea. And he shifted all his group's focus to try and create a machine to produce infrasound that could make people ill, again, identifying it for military purposes. So that bit is true. He was, they were working on the stuff. He went, hold on a second, there's this thing going on. It's making people ill in my, in my lab. Surely this might have some weaponizing possibilities. Mm. Uh, they began creating a machine that became known as the... Oh, here we go. The Lava Vasseur Whistle. What does that mean? I, I'm not sure what the translation is, but um, I'm sure French people are going, why didn't you research that bit? But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the machine produced a frequency that caused strong irritation and discomfort, affecting the ears and internal organs. Gavro and his colleague, Mr. Salt, were sick for a number of hours after just a short exposure to the lav- lava vasseur whistle. The machine produced a level of sound that was intolerable, even in buildings relatively far away from the laboratory. Blimey. So that's quite a strong effect. Yeah. Gavro uh, continued to perfect his technology. In an interview discussing his patented infrasound machine in 1966, Gavro is quoted as saying, We know that infrasound physiology effects are remarkable, even at low intensity. They radically prevent any mental work such as calculation and quickly cause fatigue, nausea and vertigo. It is an effect on the semicircular canals of the ear which is absolutely analogous to that produced by low-frequency oscillations, brackets similar to seasickness. With a slightly stronger intensity, they provoke an irresistible panic. One has the impression that the head will burst. At very high intensity, they act directly on the internal organs. Heart failure becomes possible. The loss of sight and hearing is almost certain, he said. This sounds nightmarish. Nightmarish. And this is the scientific, kind of, probably the most true account one. This isn't the kind of sensationalised one, you know, about death. You know, I, whether Gavro developed technology that actually killed anyone, either accidentally or deliberately, is highly debatable. Yeah. However, reports of military taking some of this work and developing weapons that utilise infrasound have continued and have existed. Um, It is claimed that the CIA in 1973 had a weapon called a squawk box that caused ear, shoulder, the chest wall and even your buttocks to resonate. (laughs) That doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
I'm sure they've got one of those in Anne Summers. <laughs> well, I, I was in a friend's car the other day and it's got a buttock massager. Yeah. It's not called a squawk box, is it? No, no. Well, the squawk box produced symptoms including headaches, visual distortions, other effects included, this is a bit scary, your skin gently cooking, mm. choking, extreme salivation, testicular pain, nausea, I love the way they end this. Giddiness. I'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, ask the one to look out for. The weapon, this is interesting, was described as a technological extension of witchcraft. <laughs> now, you see they're using that emotive language again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that paranormal language as well that connects it, isn't it? Uh, there is other examples. In 2005, there were reports that the Israeli Defence Force were using a weapon known as the Scream. Good Lord. It was intended as a kind of crowd control device that caused, again, nausea and dizziness. This bit's funny, though. The report suggests the device became quickly useless when protesters realised its effects could be countered by putting cotton wool in their ears. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Lateral thinking. Yeah, it it, it does take away. <laughs> can you imagine that at the military pitch? Is there any way that this weapon can be disabled? Well, you can put cotton wool in your ears, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I've, I find the very same thing works for Ed Sheeran. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you've upset a lot of the audience now. Sorry. Yes. Well, let's move on to one of the more famous story that fits in this, to use an American term, wheelhouse. And that is the mystery of what happened at the US Embassy in Havana. This is a reasonably well-known story. You may have heard of it, Ben, but I hadn't realised what the outcome of it was. So this happened, this started in November 2016, where a worker at the US Embassy in Havana in Cuba complained that he had heard strange noises outside his home. The man discussed this with his neighbour, who also worked at the embassy. I guess they were in some kind of compound or something like that, right? Mm. The neighbour said that they had also heard strange noises. A few months later, a third staffer at the embassy described hearing loss, which they also associated with this strange sound. So it kind of progressed... And then many people in the embassy started to get sick. They had symptoms of memory loss, mental stupor, hearing problems and headaches. Eventually, over 24 people reported these symptoms and they were evacuated for testing and treatment. So it kind of spread. Rumours became rife that this was all being caused by a sonic weapon potentially being used by the Russians or the Chinese. So targeting the American embassy, basically. Right, yeah. As you can imagine, this led to multiple inquiries and committees and investigations in the US uh, to find out what happened to their embassy in Cuba. And we may never know what actually happened there. However, the most likely explanation involves a weapon much more powerful than infrasound or a sonic device, the human brain. Oh, what, they'd imagined it? The most likely explanation for what happened in Havana is something, Ben, we've discussed on the podcast many times before, mass hysteria. Gosh. So, like, but these are, well, it just shows it could happen to anybody. Well, you've got to look at the background. So let's start with that. So I think the location here, Cuba, Havana, when the US decided to reopen its embassy in Cuba, which had been closed for many years because of the revolution and, you know, all the Cuban Missile Crisis, all that background, uh, there was a lot of debate into whether it was safe to do so. You know, whether embassy staff would be, I guess at best they might be the target for foreign spies and at worst they might have a risk to life opening an embassy and being there. Yeah. So in this climate, staff at the embassy were already in this almost hyper-alert state. You know, we've talked about that before, where your your senses are flying because you're going into what you believe could be a dangerous place. You know, there's risk to your health, you know, possible attack. 
So when that first guy, patient zero, first discussed these strange noises outside his home with his neighbour, events just spiralled. Interestingly, this again, this has not been uh, properly proved, but the belief is the sound they were actually hearing were crickets. <laughs> oh, come on. Surely not. Yeah, I mean, not the bat and ball game that we play here no. in the UK. <laughs> it was the, the little creaturey things. Yeah, I, that seemed a bit kind of strange, but apparently that's one of the possible solutions. And then when the rumour started that this might be some kind of targeted either infrasound or sonic weapon, the hysteria just ramped up. And stress levels of those in the embassy increased, which likely caused this mass hysteria event, which ended up in 24 of them being evacuated and treated. Because I think they couldn't find any, you know, obvious sign of illness or foul play. So, you know... A lot of people still believe it was some kind of sonic or infrasound weapon, but from all a lot of um, investigation that's gone on, mass hysteria seems to be the prime culprit. What if, though, they found out that it was, for example, the Chinese or Russians and discovered the weapon but didn't want to tell anyone that they discovered the weapon? Yeah, that's true. I did think about that, but then almost part of me thought, What's worse, that these people were the target of a weapon that has now been discovered or admitting that your embassy staff and your people in foreign countries are that susceptible to a mass hysteria event that it can cause them to almost, you know, keel, the embassy itself to keel over. Which would you rather out there? I, I kind of thought you might want to... Mm. Actually, the sonic weapon is probably a better excuse to have out there than no, it's just our people wigged out, you know what I mean? Unless they sort of say to the Chinese, well, we know you've got it, we've got one too. Uh, we won't tell anyone about yours, but don't do it again, otherwise we'll turn ours on. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm reading a lot into that. But, I, that yeah. is very devil's advocate. But the, the mass hysteria is a much more intriguing prospect yeah, and in some ways, I think scarier. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. it shows how easy it is. And who knows? It might have been an infrasound weapon. It might have been a combination of the two. Because you know, the uh, from my reading of some of those infrasound signals, it and and what we've covered already, it can cause a certain degree of paranoia and hysteria itself. So yeah, then it might be. One of those, you know, a weapon or mass hysteria or a combination of the two, you know. That is intriguing. But, I mean, I can imagine it being far from home, only mixing with a certain number of people Yeah. Um, in a potentially hostile environment. Yeah, and I, I would imagine all the staff would have been heavily briefed on, you know, don't talk to anyone, don't do that. You know what I mean? It's almost the messages they were receiving before they even went there were probably almost making them slightly paranoid. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. 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 Well, let's move on to how this might connect to the paranormal and those two papers by Vic Tandy published in the journal for the Society for Psychical Research. Now, this first paper that we mentioned a few weeks ago uh, was published in 1998 under the title The Ghost in the Machine. I'm just going to read out the abstract and introduction and then we'll kind of summarise some of the substance of the paper because I think that will work quite nicely. Uh, Tandy and his co-author, uh, Tony Lawrence, state, In this paper, we outline as yet undocumented natural calls for some cases of ostensible haunting. Using the first author's own experience as an example, we show how a 19 hertz standing airwave may, under certain conditions, create sensory phenomena suggestive of a ghost. The mechanics and physiology of the ghost-in-the-machine effect is outlined. Spontaneous case researchers, I guess ghost hunters to me and you, Ben. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got to give it a fancy name, haven't you? <laughs> They're encouraged, the paper says, to rule out this potential natural explanation for paranormal experiences in future casings, cases of the haunting or poltergistic type. When investigating a haunted building, it is good practice to attempt to exclude as many possible normal causes for the haunting as possible. 
the ways in which normally earthly events might conspire to convey an impression that a house is haunted are numerous. Thus, all of the following may well be more mundane causes of the ostensible haunt. Water hammering in pipes and radiators, brackets causing noise, electrical faults which can cause fire, phone calls, video problems, structural faults, drafts that can cause drafts, cold spots, damp spots and other noises, electromagnetic anomalies which can cause hallucinations, and exotic organic phenomena, rats scratching, beetles ticking. Exotic. I was hoping for something a bit more exotic than that. but I <laughs> <laughs> That is very, very exotic. The exclusions of these counter-explanations, when potentially relevant, must be the first priority of the spontaneous case investigator, Ghost Hunter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbusters would never have succeeded in the box office yeah, if they'd yeah, been called yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the spontaneous cases investigator, too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, He goes on to say, to this end, we feel the virtual paranormal experience reported and explained in this paper might be of interest to the spontaneous case research community. (laughs) For God's sake, nobody calls them that. (laughs) Spontaneous case research community. (laughs) Who are you going to call? The lyrics just don't fit, Ray Parker. Yeah, they just don't work. So, though many of the above counter-explanations for ghost-like phenomena may be quite easy to discount in any one case, at least some normal causes of seemingly paranormal phenomena may be, in fact, be quite subtle and not at all easy to discern for the untrained observer, as we hope to show in this paper. So that's his intro. I thought it was a good start. Mm-hmm. Apart from the, you know, just just say Ghostbuster. <laughs> So the Yvette Fielding must have that on her business card. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of hamming ourselves up, isn't it? To kind of think of something like that. I can't even remember what it was. Now. Spontaneous case researchers. Yeah, that's us. The paper starts by going into the background of a mysterious ghostly apparition at a lab that Vic Tandy was working in at the time. And we did cover this a few weeks ago, but here is a quick summary. So Vic Tandy... He was working in a lab and he came in one day to find a cleaner in a state of distress having encountered a ghost in the laboratory when she was there alone. So sceptic Tandy wrote off the cleaner's account as someone, I guess, just freaking themselves out. But over the next few days, Tandy and others working in the lab experienced some other strange phenomenon of their own. So workers in the lab reported feelings of depression and cold shivers. One colleague turned to have a conversation with Tandy, who he thought was sitting next to him, only to find that Tandy was in another room. One night, Tandy was working in the lab on his own. He experienced a sudden feeling of depression, he says. He felt very cold, but he was sweating and heard what he describes as spooky noises. I'm sure we can think of a better name for spooky noises. (laughs) (laughs) Paranormal audio phenomena. Yeah, spontaneous paranormal audio phenomena. Yeah. So Tandy checked the lab to make sure there were no leaks from gas, oxygen or carbon dioxide because I think there were bottles there and he thought, well, either that might be making the noise or having some effect on his mental state, but they were all fine. So he goes and makes himself a cup of coffee. He returns to his desk. He then sees from the corner of his eye a grey figure slowly emerge. Tandy describes his hair was standing on edge and the room became extremely cold. He finally summoned the courage to face the apparition and Tandy said, it would not be unreasonable to suggest I was terrified. So he faces this apparition for a few moments before it just fades and disappears in front of his eyes. (laughs) Tandy concluded in his own words, he must be cracking up and he went home. (laughs) For a man of such long words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. His speaking style is a lot different. <laughs> uh, we covered this briefly before, but Tandy was due to take part in a fencing competition and was in the lab working on the foil blade of his sword. Or that, is it a sword? I think they're a sabre, aren't they? I think they call them for fencing. Oh, pass, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's, it's basically a thin sword. Um, 
And this, the blade started to vibrate violently for no reason, which would freak you out if you were there on your own. Mm. Um, <clears throat> ever the scientist, Tandy started to experiment, moving the blade around the room and found that it vibrated more vigorously in one area of the laboratory. So he begins to consider that this effect might be being caused by infrasound resonating with the frequency of the blade. And after further research, he concluded the effect was being caused by an infrasound wave at 19 hertz, the, the, ghost, the oh, ghost wave. The ghost wave, yeah. Which he concluded was being emitted by an extractor fan that was being used in the lab. So from this one off-the-cuff experiment, he wanted to understand more how an infrasound wave could affect people because he's like, well, if it's affecting the blade in this way and we're getting all these weird spooky reports and I'm hallucinating things in, peering in front of my eyes, is there a connection? So there's a lot of detail in the paper about the effects of infrasound on different, you know, at different frequencies. I mean, we've mentioned some of them already. But Tandy became focused on this 19 hertz, as you might expect and how it might relate to paranormal experiences. So Tandy and Lawrence conclude their paper with a section titled Exercising the Standing Wave Ghosts, which I thought was quite clever. That is very good. He says, Once the problem was recognised and modification was made to the mounting of the extractor fan, our ghost left with the standing wave. Low-frequency sound is not easy to detect without proper equipment. It was sheer luck that the foil blade happened to be the right length and material to react and reveal the presence of the standing wave. Although 19 hertz might just be heard on its own, it is in fact unlikely to exist alone so other sounds would drown it out, which makes sense. Tandy then heard of a similar experience to which happened in a corridor in a building that had a wind tunnel in the basement. The wind tunnel was on at the time of the sighting, but Tandy was unable to do any measurements. Long tubes such as corridors are ideal places for standing waves, especially if they are closed off at both ends. The resonant frequency of one person's body parts would also be different from another, so standing wave resonance may affect one individual, but not another. Our advice for paranormal researchers in the future is to be very wary of ghosts reported to haunt long, windy corridors, exclamation mark. Oh, that's interesting, because they do often. Yes, which I, I thought that. It's, there's something about that, isn't there? Well, your stereotypical abandoned hospital, abandoned spooky building, it's got corridors with doors coming off it. I mean, that's what you think of. Yeah, and cellars as well, you know, yeah, long yeah. kind of cellar things that people go explore. And prisons, that's the other one, isn't it? Oh, prisons, of course, yeah. Yeah, because how many of those paranormal programmes just set up shop in a prison for the night, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, lots of them, yeah. Well, Vic Tandy followed his paper from 1998 with one in 2022 titled Something in the Cellar. So the abstract and introduction for this one states, an investigation into the link between infrasound and the perception of apparitions was performed in a 14th century cellar beneath the tourist information centre in Coventry. Based on the effect described in the ghost in the machine, so the previous paper, details of individual experiences were recorded and analysed, performed to test for any infrasound present in the cellar. Infrasound was found to be present at the point in which individuals had reported apparitional experiences at exactly the same frequency as that predicted in the original paper, 19 hertz. The paper describes an investigation into the phenomena described in the Ghost in the Machine paper, which proposes that low-frequency sound can cause individuals to experience what may appear to be an apparition. In the original paper, a frequency of 18.9 hertz was found to be present in a laboratory where several people experienced what could reasonably be described as an encounter with an apparition. While measuring low-frequency sound is not technically difficult, it does require specialist equipment that is expensive. An opportunity arose recently to explore a 14th-century cellar where hauntings had been reported. The expectation was that a correlation would be found between infrasound and the experiences of individual who's, individuals who had visited the site. 
While it had been found that 18.9 hertz was responsible for one apparent haunting, it was thought that a range of frequencies in this area might well give the same result. The actual measurements were so astonishing that they were repeated several times by the members of the research team. So that's the kind of abstract and induction. Yeah. So we mentioned this a few weeks ago, Ben. So the cellar they're talking about is adjacent to Coventry University and it's below this kind of more recently built tourist information Mm centre. And the site was on the site of a 14th century house, originally owned by Benedictine monks. It was a Benedictine priory, which I guess (laughs) doesn't hurt the paranormal potential. No, not at all, no. Um, And it stands opposite where Coventry Cathedral stands now, if you're familiar with Coventry. So this cellar was rediscovered during the building of the Tourist Information Centre, so they didn't realise it was there until they started building the centre. And, you know, cleverly, they now conduct tours down to it, this 14th century cellar, and many strange paranormal encounters ensued. So let's go into a little more detail on some of the spooky encounters that people have had in the cellar. Tandy writes... It is the strange experience of some visitors to the cellar that prompted this investigation. A number of stories began to emerge from several witnesses as follows. In 1997, Coventry tour guide Colin Cook accompanied a Canadian journalist touring Britain into the cellar. He noticed that the journalist gave the appearance of being taken ill as he crossed the threshold of the room. So this threshold of the room seems to be where everything happens. The gentleman was frozen to the spot and the colour drained from his face. The hairs on his arms rose up and goose pimples began to fall. Concerned for the man's health, Mr Cook asked him if he could be of assistance. The the journalist described a feeling as if a balloon was pushing between his shoulder blades and an intense feeling of a presence. Eventually he reported that the face of a woman seemed to be peering over his right shoulder. Mr Cook, the tour guide was unable to feel or see anything, but the visitor had become ashen and looked very unwell. Mr Cook became seriously concerned for the health of his visitor and suggested they return to the information centre. The journalist recounted his experience to staff in the centre and exhibited the physical symptoms for some time before recovering. This tour guide, Mr Cook, also gives details of a Latvian man who experienced a strange feeling upon entering the room. He described feeling a presence again, a cold chill, and as if there was a ghost in the room, but he didn't see a physical manifestation. Oh, that's interesting. A husband and wife visiting from the US were also accompanied by Mr Cook and entered the cellar together, but the woman suddenly stopped on the threshold of the room. She came to be experiencing a very strong feeling of presence and described it as literally barring her way. Neither her husband nor Mr Cook experienced any phenomena at all. However, the woman became pale and refused to enter the cellar, however much her husband encouraged her. On the returning to the information centre, staff noticed the very pale complexion of the woman. <laughs> I love this next bit, Ben. However, they did make the point they'd not seen her prior to the experience, so although she struck them as unusually pale, it was not known whether this was her natural complexion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> That's the kind of... T- I love the way they're not having that up. That is fantastic. You should get some sun, love. <laughs> yeah. Staff at the Information Centre were interviewed and confirmed that a significant number of visitors do report a presence in the cellar, but generally give few details. Some are just noticed to leave rather hastily. Staff did, however, remember two white witches visiting the cellar to quote-unquote make contact. They announced that there was a spirit of a woman in the cellar, but it was friendly and there was no need for any concern. Another white witch also visited, according to Carol Young, assistant manager of the centre, who was she was at the time. However, she, the white witch, was greeted with less charity by the presence and, quote-unquote, threatened to death by the experience and left rather rapidly. Mrs Young, who also acted as a tour guide, had first-hand experience of the apparition. She said she hated going down into the cellar, 
There was a very strong sense of presence, as if she were intruding, disturbing something. There was a strange chill in the atmosphere. So no physical apparitions appeared to her, um, but she felt it really strongly. And she actually started to try and talk to the ghost. So she was she, she couldn't see it, but she sensed it was there and tried to communicate with it. Um, Miss Young often accompanied German visitors into the cellar who also remarked on the feeling of intruding. So it's interesting, those themes, isn't it? Presence intruding they they kind of come up in a lot of the accounts in this yeah it's just feelings of something being ominous <clears throat> yeah uh the author says it's particularly interesting that so many foreign visitors have experienced the apparition because they would be less likely to know the seller's growing reputation oh yeah that's true yeah although i guess if you're a tour guide you'd probably ham it up a bit wouldn't you mm, yeah the experience of people in this 14th century cellar gave Tandy the perfect opportunity to test the theory that he laid out in his previous paper. Could an infrasound wave of 19 hertz be responsible for the paranormal activity? He conducted a number of tests in the cellar using infrasound measuring devices from Coventry University. And Tandy explains the results of the ex- extensive testing and he offers his conclusions, he says. There are two significant points which come from these results. The first is to question the low amplitude of the signal present, and the second is the effect of modulation. <clears throat> I'm not going to go into tons of detail about that, but we'll, we'll get on to why that's important in a second. Mm. He says, There is no proof as to the exact amplitude of the infrasound wave at the time that the apparitions were experienced. Of course, there is no absolute proof that they were there at all at this time. However, the fact that the corridor has the correct physical proportions to resonate a 19 hertz wave, combined with the fact that the uh, experimenters measured it doing so consistently for several hours, seems sufficient circumstantial evidence to pursue further. That's interesting as well. That Yeah, there's, there's sufficient... Um yeah, there's enough meat there to get into it. Yeah, yeah. He says if the signal were present at around 38 decibels, it would be completely inaudible. Now, he does go on to some other papers, but I, I'm going to mention a couple of them because I thought they were interesting, or one of them at least. He says sources such as Tempest from 1976 describe physiological responses to infrasound at levels well above the threshold of hearing. However, Mr. Cook, the tour guide, reported he was not aware of any sound during the incident he described. Experiments reported in the New Scientist suggest lower levels may have effects. The experiment described found that a frequency of 12 hertz, a level as low as 85 decibels, could cause sudden and violent nausea. This is still substantially higher than the level measured in the cellar, but the effect in the cellar is also rather less spectacular. A paper by Green from 1968 suggests a more subtle connection between infrasound and human behaviour. It draws a correlation between naturally occurring infrasound and selected human behaviours. This bit's fascinating. A test was carried out to see what effect natural infrasound from a storm some 1,500 miles away would have on the population of an area enjoying innocuous local weather conditions. So that's a good setup for an experiment. There's a storm yeah. 1,500 miles away. Would it affect inhabitants of a town that were 1,500 miles in the opposite direction? Yeah. He says, infrasound can travel enormous distances without appreciable attenuation. So the only evidence of the storm was inaudible infrasound monitored by instrumentation. So the results of the test showed an increase in automobile accident rates and higher rates of absenteeism among school children when the storm infrasound was present compared to the normal state. Now I find that bonkers. That is bonkers. I mean, I, I guess there's so many factors to kind of narrow that down to one thing, but it's fascinating. I think it's interesting that school children as well who would have, um, would be able to hear higher levels of infrasound. Yeah, that just occurred to me. 
But 1,500 miles away, that's like the south of France to us. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? From a storm. And there's loads of storms in the south of France. Yeah, yeah. It may be that the effects of infrastrand on low level are underestimated and may only affect a small part of the population. The whole area of infrasound and its effects has seen little experimentation over the past 10 to 20 years, and it would seem these findings could well justify, justify more work in this area. Modulation of the infrasonic signal is considered by those engaged in the design of infrasound weapons as an important property if the weapon is to be effective. Now, Tandy goes on in great detail. I'm just going to summarise what I understood he was saying here. So apologies if anyone thinks I've got this wrong, we've read the paper. My understanding was he was saying that basically to create a sonic weapon or an infrasound weapon, the amount of energy needed to make it effective um, is difficult to achieve and develop. But harnessing infrasound to create a smaller psychological effect could be much easier so he goes on to expand that theme in his paper he said in a recent book future war by colonel john alexander in 2000 he refers to experiments with pulsed periodic stimuli an extreme form of modulation the technique can be applied to situations where it is desirable to cause perceptual disorientation in targeted individuals this is important as it is the first acoustic weapon that does not rely on high intensity to cause the desired effect. Rather, low intensity pulsed acoustic energy can induce fairly strong effects in humans. The weapon designers are, of course, looking for something which will reliably disable its target, whereas the effects considered in this paper clearly only affect a small part of the population, and even then in a very subtle way. Dr. David Swanson makes the point that a small part of the population is hypersensitive to the effects of infrasound. These individuals have been known to become physically ill living near the seashore, a source of natural infrasound, or near oh. airports. That's interesting, isn't it? No, and it's funny, there's that thing of you almost go to the seaside for your health. It's always the kind of, yeah, of course. cliche, isn't it? Yeah. It would seem reasonable to suggest that sensitivity combined with a spooky atmosphere are significant components in the apparitional experience and that in other surroundings different interpretations might be made, which I think is an interesting point. The source of the energy to create the standing grave remains a mystery. Uh, this is at the um, 14th century cellar. Most visitors come to the centre in the summer and the events described by Mr Cook took place in pleasant weather conditions. The heating system at the tourist centre was eliminated as a potential source by simply shutting off at the request of investigators. Coventry is still a centre for industry and there are industrial plants all over the city. Vehicle noise is possible but it's unlikely to be so consistent. It is hoped that further trials will be carried out with the permission of the owners and more clues to the source will be gained. The findings of this investigation would seem to support the effect described in the Ghost in the Machine, their previous paper, to find exactly the predicted frequency was astonishing and the experiment was repeated several times to ensure that there was no anomaly of the equipment. While reluctant to rule out other frequencies in the infrasound band, clearly 19 hertz must be of particular interest. The dimension of the corridor leading to the cellar fit well with the assertion that is resonating with this frequency and contains a standing wave. So it's very specific conditions, but they're familiar conditions. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know, I started thinking about it. Uh, uh, I was interested, well, one, I was interested by his work that right from the very start, he wasn't saying I found the solution to ghosts. He was saying, if you're conducting investigations, it's another thing that you should consider to rule out before saying, yes, that was definitely something paranormal. But so often people say, oh, I feel a presence or this place is spooky or um, I'm being watched that all would play into exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. And it's that idea that if there is infrasound there, that that frequency can cause some maybe low-level strange effects on some people for their body and their mind. 
And I guess his point that he was making earlier is if you combine that with a spooky narrative and a spooky story, well, if you take that one, you know, it's almost, it's the Coventry one's almost got the perfect basis for a ghost story, isn't it? Building work was happening at a visitor centre when they found a 14th century cellar, which then was owned by Benedictine monks, and then all this spooky stuff starts happening, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah. So if if you've got infrasound present in that environment and you're in a cellar, for God's sake, with that backstory, your mind is going to go there, right? Your mind could go there without the infrasound, but let alone when you put that into the mix as well, right? Yes, completely, completely. And it also makes me think maybe that's why people have an ethereal connection to the sea, or some people do anyway. Yeah, because maybe maybe it has the opposite effect in some people. It's almost a calming resonance, maybe. That's interesting. Well, the people describe sometimes the sea as being alive, and that has many reasons for the metaphor, but, you know... That might be a bit of a, a reach, but, I, you know, it's interesting. I hadn't ever thought of the sea as being a creator of infrasound. Yeah, I, I must admit, while I was working on this, I know it isn't connected to the sea, but when I was working on this episode, I I kept thinking of 30 East Drive for some reason. Because, mm, mm. you know, it, it's it's easy, depending on your point of view, it's easy to be sceptical about 30 East Drive, you know, given it's backstory who owns it the fact that people you know it's a it's a working business in a way isn't it where you can go and visit and hire it out i don't know if it still is but it was it is yeah um so you kind of think oh it's just um people going to that environment and freaking yourself out i mean it's a spooky place you've been right i have yeah Yeah. you felt you felt a presence would would you say that you felt anything um I suppose I did in one of the rooms feel a bit uneasy, but I did hear footsteps, the taps did turn on, and I famously had an apparating packet of cheese and onion crisps. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that mm. was the crisp place, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Well, look, I don't know if there's any kind of infrasound at that level at 30 years Drive, but it just kind of made me think that this, these papers, and a bit the story of the US Embassy, of like how quickly mass hysteria can develop maybe think if you've got a kind of combination of this spooky backstory like 30 years drive there is some infrasound there who who knows maybe somebody's actually put it in there to make Mm. it feel weird um i'm not saying they have but um if you combine that you can see how this kind of almost hysteria can develop and why people continue to see stuff in there and skeptics would write it off and go oh they're just being silly but yeah, maybe it is it is more complex than that when you include things like infrasound in the mix because if you're feeling in that slightly, you know, nausea... You know, he did, describes it in that first paper, you know, the people in the lab felt depressed, you know, so it was having a psychological and physical effect on them. You combine that with a spooky location like 30 East Drive, you're off to the races, right? Yeah, very much so, very much so. And I wonder as well whether um, it, it what this does is mean that these these sort of feelings of you know when people say oh I go into places and said something mm. this is where it comes from but it doesn't necessarily explain everything it doesn't explain when people see the ghosts or when things move of their own accord. But it, it's an. It, I, I like the way he says it's another element to consider. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's like when... It, I think when we covered it a few weeks ago, I'd almost... Because I'd read the news reports about it before reading the whole paper. I thought he was basically saying, I found the cure for ghosts, you know, or the, the, the rationale for ghosts. But no, he's he's kind of saying, look, just bear it in mind. You know, there are plenty of reasons why people mistakenly have paranormal encounters, you know, the ones he's listed. I, it made me think of in the pub, I, 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 don't, I don't know if you remember this, but when we spent the night in the pub, there was one point where we heard some strange noises coming from the, the toilets and we were like, oh my God, is that something? And you kind yes. of go, and we both went, look, okay, we've been in this location a number of times because we drink in here. We've never been in here at night when it's completely quiet. Mm, mm. We don't know what it sounds like. This is probably this probably occurs all the time. You know what I mean? So it's easy to kind of 
get almost pulled in that direction, isn't it, without discounting those things? I think that was infra-beer as well. Yeah, yeah, infra-beer. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely caused some various effects. Very Slur, Slurring of speech. <laughs> Very low-frequency beer, well, high-frequency beer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I thought it was fascinating and the uh, the weaponized bit of it. I, I was kind of, having started by reading the press reports, I was slightly made to feel a little bit easier that these, you know, these these reports of your internal organs just being kind of mushed seem very unlikely. But it's more, it, it's almost like I'm sure they're, and the history of infrasound weapons seem to be more as a way of dis- disorientating your enemy rather than necessarily directly killing them. I'm reminded of that story of when one of the KLF bought... So the, the legend goes that they bought a ex-Soviet noise weapon oh, really? and played K. Sarah Sarah through it Okay. And killed a field of sheep. But I think that is... <laughs> I think there's an element of disinformation in there. Uh, yeah, I think... I I think. I don't think we would all, always say that everything the KLF said was a reliable source, would we? No, I think they definitely bought the vehicle because I've seen pictures of it, but yeah. I don't think that happened. Yeah. And the case of Rasserab, it's definitely true. You can see them even as a concept, but... You know, I did wonder whether, you know, I was thinking about the movie adaptations using them. Hmm. Uh, it surely must be more complicated than that because of compression and sound systems. It can't be that easy to just create that exact wave. Right? No, no. And audience safety as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I'm not sure there's any kind of regulations that would prevent you. No, it's illegal to do um, subliminal advertising. So I, you know. Yeah, it might fall under that subliminal audio, maybe. Subliminal audio. Yeah. Still, you're right. That was absolutely fascinating. I had no idea there was so much to it. But it also makes me think, when I said I'd read that book where they thought that they had come up with the answer to the Dilatov incident with infrasound, it makes me think it's increasingly unlikely. Right. Because? Because um, the infrasound coming off a, a rock causing a number of people to hallucinate so wildly mm. seems to be contra what this scientist is saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's. I, I was thinking when I was reading some of the, the stuff about the weapons, you, you almost... I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think it was in the 60s where they experimented with giving soldiers, American soldiers, acid... LSD, yeah, uh, and that footage, you know, they they're all over the place. Didn't have a clue what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the description, certainly from Tandy's papers, even with kind of higher frequencies or amplitude, doesn't seem to cause anything as extreme as you know psychotic drugs or hallucinogenic drugs would do. So, you know, I I can see the benefit of it. As uh, unless they're playing it down, I can see the benefit of it as a weapon to disorientate people. Because if if you can deliver it, I'm slightly changing my tact here, but if you can deliver it like the storm from thousands of miles away, then I guess it becomes more interesting, doesn't it? It does. If you can disorientate your enemy from two thousand miles away, that's quite without them even knowing what's going on. That is quite powerful. Well, that's another depressing thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. that's all for this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's stop talking about Chinese weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a funky cat on the way over here. A funky cat? Yeah, have you seen one of those? No. The Chinese electric car. Oh, what's it like? Good. Uh, well, it certainly looks funky. If by funky you mean goofy. Right. Um, oh, it looked pretty cool. But, um, yeah, perhaps that's got a built-in noise weapon. Who knows? <laughs> well, at least we'll get out of the way of it if we can't hear it. That's true. Oh, thank you for bringing that to the table. That was really, really interesting. I'm just going to um, uh, I'm gonna listen to music sort of more carefully now. And um, not that it'll have infrasound in, but 
the power of music if it can do that to you yeah no wonder some music makes you feel up some music makes you feel yeah. down yeah, yeah that makes sense that makes sense it's something we don't really talk about the kind of physical no. effects of music That's no a really we don't good point. no good well go and listen to your favorite piece of music after listening to us or listen to another one of our episodes um we uh, we are we're still publishing uh, on a podcast where we normally do. We have got our YouTube channel at the Quantum Mechanics at the moment. We're just putting out the podcast sometimes with some extra visuals. Uh, numbers are low, so um, that's fine. Because if you're listening to us on the podcast, that's cool. And we're just going to keep going for a little while and just see whether it's of interest to people and see if we can build it. So if you fancy a different kind of experience, go and check out our YouTube. But if not, keep listening to us where you listen to us now. Very well put. Thank you. We are the multi-platform mechanics. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> well, we'll see you next week. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics.